Hello all, warmest welcomes from a rainy, wetter than an otter's pocket, North Wales to yet another episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. Hopefully by now, one, where I'm eased back into the routine of doing the show, I'll let you guys decide. As ever, I'm Paul, the host and creator of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. It's awesome having you here joining me for another tale, which I thank you very much for, and I hope that the episode finds everybody well and in good spirits. Many thanks for your kind and very honest feedback about the first couple of episodes of Series 4 that I've received from you all so far. Tatty's story and letters from a fan. The general consensus I get is that they've gone down very well, which pleases me no end because it's always the aim of the show that. And it will be the same with this week's case, which I hope you find as interesting a tale as I did when I was researching it. But we'll get to that shortly because there's plenty of old shite for me to waffle first. You know the drill here. Firstly, and this isn't shite by the way, it's very sincere. Big thanks to both returning and new Patreon supporters of the show, namely Rachel McKenzie, Philip Hodson and Stacey Menard. Cheers guys, you're absolute diamonds the lot of you are. And some more bonus content is heading on its way soon for subscribers to go with a stack of already existing bonus episodes. There's almost a full series worth of them there now. If you think, well, I want to get on that bus too, just follow the link that can always be found in the episode show notes on my website or by searching out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast on the Patreon site. There are several different tiers available for supporters and for a small contribution each month, before you know it, you too could be hearing the sad tale behind The War That Comes Home or the strange saga of The Wife in the Wicker Basket bonus episodes of the show to name just a couple. And both of them are crazy and amazing tales, those two are, I tell you. There's at least one bonus episode per month released for subscribers now, but as I said last week on the show, I've now decided to add some more regularly when I see fit, but always on top of the monthly bonus subscriber one. So sometimes there might be two in a month. If I find something decent enough for a bit of extra, then it's all yours. I'm starting to collate cases for this series listener scripted episode right about now also, so she'll just reiterate. If there's a case that captures your interest, it might be a local one to you, one that captures your interest or perhaps even one with a personal connection to you, who knows, and you think that it's fitting for a show episode, then by all means get in touch and suggest it. And equally, if it's one that you want to take on board and research and write up yourselves, well, that's all good too. This will be the fourth listener-based episode we've done since the show began, and I've loved doing each one. The cases have all been great choices, they've all been well-researched and written up, and totally not one of them has been a case that I would have picked out myself for an episode of the show. So can you see why I enjoy doing them so much? The offer is there, guys. By all means, please get in touch with a suggestion or a piece of your work. I'm more than happy to showcase it here on The Enthusiast. So then this week on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, we come to a case that takes place centrally in the English county of Lancashire, but the episode will take us as far north as Scotland and also as far south as Southampton. Events that are mentioned within the episode also span a period of 40 years in total, and all will become clear, I'm sure. What do you think about grudges? Are you the type of person that harbours a grudge against someone? Or do you believe that life is too short? I mean, if you believe that someone wrongs you in any way, can you resolve it and forgive and forget after a while? Of 
course, depending on what the circumstances of whatever it is is? Or are you the type of person who's like, right, that's it, that person's dead to me, and never speak to or deal with that person again? Can you admit when you're wrong? Or what if you're so blinded by rage and convinced that your predicament lies at the feet of someone else, that you can't see that your actions and woes are actually your own fault entirely, and you instead blame someone else completely for those woes or predicaments? What then if this mistaken blame, shall we say, festers into slow-burning rage and loathing? Perhaps it burns itself out? Or perhaps it carries on over weeks, months, even years? If so, then how does that end? Well, as it's an episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, it's probably not going to end well, is it? The episode this week contains descriptions of crimes and events that some listeners may find disturbing or upsetting, so please use discretion whilst listening as always, folks. With that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast as we look back at the events that make up a case I've entitled The Judge and the Grudge. The often voted most popular seaside resort in the UK is the town of Blackpool on the northwest coast of the country in the county of Lancashire. It's a large town with a population of about 140,000 people, is famed for its pleasure beach, for being a hell-raising place to go on a stag or hen do to, and for being the location where soap villain Alan Bradley fell under a tram whilst chasing Rita Faircloth in a memorable storyline from UK soap Coronation Street many years ago. Now I'm proper sure my age saying that because it was that long ago on Corrie that God's dog was a puppy. And speaking of the street by the way, I believe that Rita was one mystery, shall we say, that Ken Barlow never got to the bottom of, if you know what I mean. By all accounts, and I've always enjoyed Blackpool whenever I've been there, it's a crime hotspot though and in 2016 reportedly had the fourth highest murder rate in the UK. Now it does have some infamous crimes connected with it if you look them up, and that you never know, we may visit at a future date here on the show. And Blackpool is a good starting point for the case featured in the episode this week. The crowd of holidaymakers peered anxiously up into the gloom as the rain lashed down on Blackpool's famous Golden Mile. Unsurprisingly for the UK, this was the height of the 1980 summer season, and far from being all sun and frolics, it was instead windswept and wet, and the usually crowded sands were deserted in the fading light of the August evening. Yet throughout the daytime the place was still crowded, with thousands of holidaymakers all attracted by the curiosities that were found along the promenade, and the most famous attraction of all in Blackpool, the 125-year-old, 518-foot-high Blackpool Tower. In an episode last series I mentioned Blackpool. As, as I said, I think it's a great place indeed, I really do. And a friend of mine many years ago once went out for a quick pint here in Wrexham that became a second pint that then led on to a sesh of such proportion that he woke up the next morning in a guest house in Blackpool with no memory of even leaving Wrexham. Now I don't know whether he went up the tower or not while he was there, but the main lesson to take from that is, never ever go for a night out with him. The lone figure was spotted just after 7.30pm that evening, inching his way further and further up the outside of the top of the tower, 
totally oblivious to the crowds of people he was drawing by his ascent. A wiry-looking man aged about 30 years old and wearing a one-piece blue flying suit, he'd taken the lift with other tourists who'd gone up to the highest observation deck of the tower at 380 foot, and obviously having been up there before and knowing exactly where to go, had then vaulted a locked security gate which led to the crow's nest at the tower top, which was blocked off to the general public. Once inside, he made his way to the outer area of here, wrapped a scarf around his face, and steadily climbed to the flagpole near the pinnacle of the 518-foot tower. At first, people thought this was some sort of publicity stunt. It was long before Fathers for Justice this was. Then they thought it was perhaps a practical joke. But whatever it was, the man showed no signs of coming down, and police and emergency services were soon on standby, fearing that it could be some sort of epic suicide attempt. Although I doubt jumping off Blackpool Tower would be much of an attempt, really. Or that he could actually slip and fall to his death. As a team of officers raced upwards towards a platform that was 20 foot below where he was perched, powerful floodlights were beamed onto the man and a waiting and negotiating game began. The man was to remain up on his perch for almost two full days, talking to the officer's position just below him. Refusing offers of food or clothing, he gave his name as John Smith and told the negotiating officers that he was making a protest and had already sent two letters to civil liberties and prisoners' rights organisations before he'd climbed up there. Although concerning what his protest was about exactly, he couldn't be drawn on. This spectacle attracted a mass crowd of onlookers as it went on throughout the night and all of the next day and eventually the crowd began to become impatient, wanting something to happen. Some delightful Bayan people even drew messages in the sand on the beach, urging the Birdman of Blackpool, as he'd become known by then, to jump. But he didn't comply with this request. He instead remained up there just talking to police for 41 hours in total. Ultimately, he eventually shared to his negotiators that he was protesting over perceived police brutality and prison conditions, and eventually was persuaded to climb down after being given two Mars bars and a bottle of water, and promised of a hot cup of tea and a cigarette if he did so. Sometimes a brew and a fag is just what you need, isn't it really? After he was safely in the hands of police officers, and if you check the show's Instagram page, there's an image of Smith being led away, looking like a shame-faced Pete Townsend. He was arrested and taken to court, where he was bound over to keep the peace. He was to admit during the hearing that although his son was stupid, it was a statement of intent rather than a cry for help, and his appointed solicitor at the time told the court it was the only way he felt he could get himself any degree of notoriety. Well, just a year later, Smith was to go one better to achieving notoriety on a mission to serve up his own twisted form of justice. John Smith's story began more than 12 years before he spider-manned up Blackpool Tower in 1968. It was that year that an 18-year-old Smith and his senior partner in crime, a 49-year-old Fagin type named George Boyle, had roamed the streets of the rural Lancashire village of Worsthorn, specialising in the theft and resale of scrap metal. 
One night in February 1968, the two had headed over to the nearby town of Nelson, where they spent the evening drinking before realising that at closing time, they'd missed the last bus back home and had spent all of their money on the lash, not leaving them enough for a taxi back home. Rather than walk the several miles back to Warsthorn, Smith had suggested that the pair steal a van, which they had done, but they'd been arrested whilst doing so, and a few weeks later found themselves up in Preston Crown Court. The case was an open and shut, pretty unremarkable one really, one that was over in a short time before the next hearing on a normal day in the busy court, and only warranted a small mention of a line or two in the local press. But it can be pinpointed to that very day that lit a fuse, a very slow-burning one granted, within John Smith that was to set him ultimately on the road to murder many years later. By all accounts, Smith had decided as he stood there in the dock that he wanted to make a clean break away from a life of crime, and so admitted 19 other offences besides the five that he was charged with to be taken into consideration. After the cases were heard, Boyle was sentenced to 18 months imprisonment, while Smith was sent to Borstal training at Her Majesty's pleasure. Here in his sentence, he glared across the courtroom at the stern figure who'd just deprived him of his liberty. He memorised the serious yet kindly face of the tall, bewigged figure who ordered court staff to take him away to begin his sentence, and it was to be a face that Smith was never to forget. Sat in the cells waiting to go to Risley Remand Centre in Warrington, Smith had seemed to be accepting of his fate, telling Boyle, This has got to be the last time, George. I'm going to stay clean after this. But for all his apparent good intentions, Smith found Borstal hard going indeed, and his first incarceration was extremely tough on him. He was to serve 18 months here in Borstal, which I can imagine was a hellish establishment as young offenders institutions often were, and still are by all accounts. If you head over to the UK True Crime website, Adam's written a decent and interesting blog entry on this very subject for anyone who may be interested. It's quite a fascinating read, it's well worth heading over and having a look at. I've also seen the film Scum, and yeah, they're pretty horrible kind of places, unless you're Ray Winstone of course, and then you're the daddy, aren't you? Now Smith developed a grudge based around the severity of the 18 months that he was to serve in Borstal and he began to brood about what he deemed to be the injustice of his sentence, developing a deep-seated loathing for the one man he believed was responsible for his predicament. Over the years, even after his release, this loathing grew and grew until he was a ticking time bomb with an anger by now at the legal system as a whole but personified mostly in the face that had first sent him to Borstal. He saw that face every single day from then onwards. The face belonged to Mr Justice William Openshaw, a father of three and grandfather known as Bill to his family and friends. William Harrison Openshaw was a rarity in legal circles, a senior circuit judge who'd never lost the common touch with people and one who easily earned the love and respect of those who grew close to him. A native of Southport, where he was born in 1913, Bill Openshaw went on to be educated at Harrow and Cambridge before being called up to the bar in 1936. 
During the Second World War, he served as a major in the King's Own Border Regiment and saw action in North Africa and with the Chindits in Burma before returning to the Northern Court Circuit at the end of the war as a forthright barrister, becoming chairman of the county's quarter sessions in 1958. In court, he was not somebody to cross and took no messing, but his brand of justice was considered both fair and dignified to those on both sides of the law, with him taking an especial stance against violence, particularly assaults upon the police, muggins or any attacks where weapons were used. Yet as he progressed within his legal career, he remained as down-to-earth as ever, a man of the people as he'd always been, and refusing to appear standoffish or superior to anyone due to his position. He'd think nothing of stopping in the street and chatting with everyone and his dog about fishing or his beloved Preston North End football team, and was described as being a great boss, one who was filled with friendly chat and jokes with his court staff, and always the first one to dish out presents to all at Christmas. Because he was so liked and respected for his humorous and understanding nature, coupled with his sense of justice and fair play, he was obvious choice for such official roles as Preston's Honorary Recorder, President of the Preston Marriage Guidance Council, and from 1968 onwards, a Deputy Lieutenant of Lancashire, all of which he served with due diligence and pride, but in a total everyman kind of way. So down to earth was he, that Judge Openshaw even elected to have his titled name and address in the telephone directory for all to see, claiming that he had no reason to hide, and although he admitted later that he would get annoying or abusive telephone calls from someone who he may have sent down beforehand, he simply claimed, oh you get used to it, and dismissed it off just like that. Totally down to earth, the kind of boss you'd want, highly respected and one very well liked both in the judiciary and his home life. But as Judge Openshaw continued with his high-flying career, another man was plotting his ultimate downfall. From the very moment that Judge Openshaw sent him to Borsal that day in 1968, John Smith began developing a warped, delusional obsession that he was being persecuted by police and the judiciary. He regularly complained about allegedly being beaten up in cells and developed a fierce anger about what he saw as injustice towards other people, seeing Judge Openshaw as the man who so many years before had sown the seeds of his own hatred of the law. Smith's criminal career had begun as a teenager growing up in Brownside Road in Warstorn, where he lived with his widower father. A former neighbour of Smith's, Linda Hargreaves, who lived next door to him for 12 years, told later how Smith had lost the plot after his mother had died, and already getting into scrapes by that time, within days of her death he'd stolen his first car, before developing a partnership stealing scrap metal and committing vehicular offences with the older George Boyle. This led, as we've heard, to Sporstall for Smith in 1968, but he wasn't to turn over a new leaf following his release. He developed problems with alcohol and prescription drugs and was to glean several more convictions over the years for drunkenness, affray, assault and theft and received more than one custodial sentence, including one of two and a half years. When he wasn't out law-breaking, he would obsessively pore over books at home detailing supposed miscarriages of criminal justice, cases the likes of Hanratty, Bentley, 
Evans, all people that Smith believed shouldn't have hanged. It was claimed he could get quite infuriated about this and work himself right up into a rage so passionate did he feel about the subject. He began from here to develop a pathological hatred of police who he called the filth and was always complaining that they could get away with treating people like animals. It was this obsession that had motivated Smith to climb to the top of Blackpool Tower, but it was to emerge later that it was not the first time Smith had done things like this in search of what he believed was justice and publicity for his cause. In 1973, he'd scaled to the top of a 140-foot chimney in Burnley and had to be talked down by police, again protesting over perceived police brutality. A week after this, he was in court for randomly attacking a complete stranger in the street before admitting to burgling a judge's chambers and stealing property. Periods of incarceration would be intertwined with periods of hospitalisation and medical or psychiatric treatment, and the cycle continued like this. To those who knew him, unsurprisingly, Smith was a complete loner. He couldn't mix easily with people at all, only being able to do so with alcohol inside him, and had no real friends outside of his sister Brenda Morrison's extended family who he'd often fall out with as a result of drunken rows and violent outbursts. Most of his days would be spent roaming alone around the fields of Worsthome brooding, and Smith's father, Fred, would confide to friends that he was worried about his son's unhealthy obsession, as he called it. Following his father's death as a result of a heart attack that he suffered only a few days after being beaten up by Smith during one of the many family domestic rows, Smith went even further downhill. The family home was sold after his father's death and Smith began living like a vagrant, sleeping rough in an old derelict house and drinking whatever he could get his hands on. Eventually though, he was taken in by Brenda and her family and allowed to sleep on the sofa in a family home of Rhone Avenue in Burnley. Now by all accounts this was seemingly a bit of a turning point for Smith he cut down on his drinking and rowing with people, and his sister later said, He cooked for himself and we hardly knew he was there. John wasn't stupid, he had a good head on him, but he'd been troubled with nerves since his mother died. At the time, though, neither his sister or any of her family, the people who were closest to John Smith, were to know that hidden beneath the floorboards near the far wall of the back bedroom of a council house in Verona Avenue, was a document that, when examined later, would leave top government, legal and police bosses proper reeling. All the time Smith had spent wandering around alone, he was seemingly building himself up for one thing. He had murder in mind and wanted to become Britain's most notorious assassin. The document under the floorboards was a hit list filled with top figures in the police and legal system all senior, highly influential and respected persons in their respective fields. A separate document detailed Smith's reasonings behind each target. It contained names such as the then Lord Chancellor, Lord Hailsham, David McNee, Metropolitan Police Commissioner at the time, and Senior Northern Judge Mr Justice Philip Kershaw, a justice who had once sentenced Smith to two and a half years imprisonment. Smith had even considered an attack on the royal family, but had considered them to be too closely guarded. 
and also reprieved was then Home Secretary William Whitelaw, as Smith considered him to be a fair man due to his short sharp shock policies on prison reform. His obsession growing more and more each day, Smith would constantly refine and pore over the names on his list, chopping and changing it, adding and removing figures as he saw fit. But one name remained constant out of all the lawmen that he grew to despise so much, the one who'd introduced him to the penal system in the first place. It was the very top of his list. Judge William Openshaw The final straw for Smith came on the morning of May 11th, 1981. That morning his nephew Wayne, who himself was certainly no saint, was up in court on charges of burglary and Smith came home to his sister's house later that morning to ask how Wayne had gotten on in court. Told that Wayne had been found guilty and sent to Borstal for the offences, Smith replied, Oh well, I suppose he'll learn the hard way. He then turned to leave immediately, saying, See you, Bren, and headed out of the door. Several hours later, Smith boarded a train to nearby Preston, where he was seen later that day causing a public disturbance, waving his arms about and screaming obscenities loudly outside the town's Crown Court. But he had other things on his mind apart from doing this, and other reasons for being in Preston that day, which to the shock and horror of the town, by the following day reasons that were to become all too clear. Judge stabbed to death, screamed the headline of the Lancashire Evening Post newspaper from the evening edition of May the 12th. It read, A murder hunt was launched today after Lancashire judge William Openshaw was stabbed to death at his Preston home. It is thought the 68-year-old Crown Court judge grappled with an intruder in the driveway of his home, Park House, in Garstang Road, Broughton. The eminent judge had been found severely bleeding on his garage floor by his wife Joyce, and by the time the ambulance was summoned and arrived, it was sadly too late to save him. Police initially thought that Judge Openshaw had disturbed a burglar trying to steal his car early that morning and a murder hunt was launched immediately looking for a heavily bloodstained killer who'd been seen running from the house shortly before 9am. As the large setback house was sealed off and guarded, task force officers, regional crime squads and local detectives began the hunt for Judge Openshaw's killer under the command of Superintendent Ray Rimmer. Dog handlers and mounted police were drafted in to search parkland in the direction that the man had fled in, at the rear of the judge's leafy home, which was situated directly opposite Broughton Police Station and just off the main A6 Preston to Lancaster Road. Whilst the helicopter was used to swoop over the village and surrounding areas to search from the air the area bordering the A6, in case the killer had fled across the road and gone to ground in the surrounding woodland and scrub. As all this was going on, local residents, having already heard of the tragedy as it rippled through the community, as these things do in a small village, wept openly as Judge Openshaw's body was removed from the scene and taken away in a hearse. Meanwhile, a devastated Joyce Openshaw was being comforted by her children and even the vicar of St John the Baptist Church in Broughton, and eventually managed to tell police how she came face to face with her husband's killer. She explained that following breakfast that morning, at about 8.30am Bill had said goodbye to her and as customary, a 
had gone into the garage to get his car out before leaving for the five mile drive from his home to Preston Crown Court that day for the second day of a trial that he was overseeing. Some minutes later Joyce had heard a raised voice outside and already finding it strange that she'd not heard her husband's car leaving went out to investigate. Approaching the garage she saw that the car was parked on the driveway with the engine ticking over but a strange man sat in the driver's seat of her husband's green Ford Escort, a dark-haired male aged about 20 to 40 years old with a dark complexion. Of her husband, there was no sign. Alarmed at this, fearing that her husband was the target of a possible kidnap plot, Joyce returned to the house and telephoned police, then returned outside, where she now saw the man had gone and her husband lying on the garage floor covered in blood. She'd immediately gone back in and telephoned for an ambulance and then gone to comfort her wounded husband. Although police were on the scene within moments and tried desperately to administer first aid to George Openshaw, he sadly died shortly after the ambulance arrived, too gravely wounded to save due to the multiple stab wounds he'd succumbed to. The entire town was left reeling over news of the murder because, as we've said, Judge Openshaw was highly respected and was very well liked. The region's courts were all closed that day as a mark of respect and news of his death brought tributes in the Lancashire Evening Post from several of his colleagues and fellow Prestonians, amongst them notable public figures such as Preston Mayor Ted Butcher, High Sheriff of Lancashire Roy Fisher, even Preston's then Member of Parliament, Robert Atkins. In fact, the news desk at the Lancashire Evening Post was absolutely swamped with the hundreds of messages of sympathy and condolences that flooded in, so much so that reporters struggled to take in the tide of grief. By the following day, there was a new headline in the Post. Judges killing, man held. News that a Lancashire man was being held in connection with the murder spread like wildfire through a town still reeling from shock and struggling to come to terms with the murder. But he wasn't in Preston, he'd been arrested up in Scotland and was being held by Scottish police on charges of theft, assault, robbery and abduction. Lancashire police announced they'd apply for a warrant to arrest him from them, which was granted, and detectives from Preston travelled up to the border town of Howick. The man was, of course, John Smith. On the previous evening in the police station at Howick, in Roxburghshire, in the eastern southern uplands, Detective Inspector Richard Slater, Detective Chief Inspector Jeff Meadows, and Detective Constable Jim Arnold had travelled up from Lancashire to speak to Smith, who was sat in a small interview room handcuffed to DC Arnold about the murder of George Openshaw. The first thing DCI Meadows asked Smith was, Why did you do it, John? Smith replied, Because he was a bastard. He sent me down the first time on five charges, unauthorised taking, housebreaking and shot breaking. He never gave me a chance. Smith claimed that his first target before Judge Openshaw had actually been Lord Hailsham, then Lord Chancellor as we said, and to this extent he'd even been down to London a few weeks before the murder with the intention of killing Lord Hailsham, but when he got there he either bottled out of doing it or changed his mind when he realised Hailsham had done him no personal harm. It's unclear which. 
throwing the knife he'd taken with him to London for the purpose of murder into the River Thames, Smith dejectedly made his way back to Burnley. Now at that time, the Lord didn't insist on the offer of legal assistance from the outset of a police interview such as this, although it would be offered at the conclusion of any interview. After he told police his story, Smith was told that a solicitor from his hometown of Burnley had been inquiring about representing him upon return, but he replied, Not on this he's not. I don't want any fucking cowboys from Burnley. They work hand in glove with the police. If I go back to England, I'll have Barrington Black. When the DCI replied, What if he's not available? Smith smiled as he said, He'll be available for this. Barrington Black, what a great name that is or what, isn't it, eh? And his memoirs were a particularly interesting read and a valuable source for creating this episode. Barrington Black was a celebrated lawyer who was later a high court judge who was famed throughout the country at the time and one constantly in demand for his reputation as a reliable and effective defence solicitor. He'd been involved with cases such as the Boarded Barn murders and the infamous Donald Nielsen, the Black Panther himself, and when he was contacted by D.I. Slater, Mr. Black agreed to see Smith and prepared to make the journey from his home in Harrogate to Preston that evening to be in time to confer with his prospective client early the following morning before he appeared in court to face the various charges of murder, kidnapping and unlawful imprisonment that were levelled against him. When Smith met Mr. Black the next morning at Preston Custody Suite, they shook hands and Smith introduced himself, telling Mr. Black that he'd heard a lot about him. He then spoke easily and freely to his prospective counsel, with no prompting whatsoever, and explained how he was NFA, of no fixed abode, before saying, I have numerous convictions, the last one a year ago for assaulting the police, and they gave me 28 days. He went on to say that he did have next of kin, his sister Brenda, who lived in Burnley, and he told Mr Black to visit her and to go upstairs to the back bedroom where underneath the floorboards against the far wall he would find two letters which would tell him why he had done what he'd done. Because Smith was shaking slightly but noticeably, Black inquired as to how he was medically and Smith went on to list the various doctors that he'd seen over recent years and establishments where he'd been both an in and out patient. It was also learned that for the previous 10 years, Smith had been prescribed Valium, and for the previous two months also, Tuanil, which is a sleeping pill. He gave Mr Black the name of his GP, and arrangements were made for Smith to obtain his regular prescribed dosage of both of these. The memoirs then describe how Smith then stood up and made his way to the window, we're looking out with his back to Mr. Black, almost an ACDC album there, wasn't it? He said, I was feeling like a powder keg as a result of that sentence. It was Judge Openshaw. He sentenced me at Preston Quarter Sessions in 1968, 13 years ago, to Borstal training. There'd been five charges, two a burglary, taking a vehicle, driving without insurance and while disqualified. Asked by Mr Black if any matters had been taken into consideration at the time, Smith replied, 19, and I had to do 18 months, 18 bloody months. Although the lads spent shorter periods there, I had to stay for 18 months. But what Smith failed to realise, and perhaps it may have even changed his vendetta if he had, 
was that Borsal at the time was an indeterminate sentence of between six months and two years, and the exact duration of his sentence would have been beyond the remit of the sentencing judge. Smith then tried to impress his counsel by telling Mr Black that according to his reading of celebrated legal Bible Archbold on criminal pleading evidence and practice, he believed he should have been correctly charged with treason rather than murder. Smith's understanding was that when a justice was attacked, it was deemed to be treason and not necessarily murder. However, he was dismayed to hear that by the Treason Act of 1351, Archbold states, it is treason to kill a judge of the High Court being in his place doing his office which would mean being on the bench, not in his garage getting into his car. But it was something Smith had obviously looked up, wasn't it? And one thing was abundantly clear with Smith. He had no wish to plead diminished responsibility to his crime, because if he came across as someone who was unbalanced in any way, he claimed, My message will not get across. Nobody will believe me. They'll think I'm a crank. He made it quite clear that he was fully conscious of the implications that might follow his actions. Although he may have taken a few Valium during the course of the evening in question and even had a few drinks, he was not drunk or drugged up to the eyeballs falling about all over the place, as he put it. He was quite calm and composed and moreover, he'd planned the murder over a couple of months so it was hardly a rash spur-of-the-moment job. Smith, and he's probably one of the most open and frank killers that I've ever come across what since I've been doing the show, Smith accepted totally what he'd done, saying, I am a murderer, a cold, calculated killer who deserves no sympathy, and I ask for none. Nobody should be allowed to take the life of another in cold blood, and if it suits public opinion, I would welcome hanging back tomorrow if I felt it would achieve anything. I would be prepared to die, it doesn't worry me now. What I've got to go through in the forthcoming years is far greater punishment than any walk to the gallows and I hope you will appreciate that fact. Yet Smith claimed that he felt sorry for the Openshaw family and that was why he intended to plead guilty because he didn't want to cause them any further distress by making them relive the horror of what had happened through a protracted trial. For Judge Openshaw, though, he had not one shred of remorse. Still blinded by hate for the man that he'd butchered, Smith said of him, Everyone seems to forget about all the people he sentenced in the past, some for long periods, some for short, who've been unable to stand the strain and stress of confinement and who've either taken their own life or gone mad. He was blind to human reason, so he paid for it with his life. He took mine so I took his. Now you can proper, proper feel the contempt through a sentence like that, can't you? It's unreal, isn't it? On May the 14th, 1981, Smith appeared briefly during a 12-minute hearing at Preston Magistrates Court to hear the charges that had been levelled against him. No attempt to apply for bail was made before the trial, and come in full circle in a way, Smith was remanded into custody at Risley Remand Centre. 
Just a day later, the inquest into Judge Openshaw's death resumed at Preston Coroner's Court. It had been adjourned for a day by Deputy County Coroner Michael Dolphin, following official identification that had been made by Judge Openshaw's son Peter, who was himself a barrister. Dr Gordon Benstead, the examining pathologist, gave evidence that cause of death had been from multiple stab wounds to the head, back and chest that had caused massive shock and internal bleeding. With the inquest formalities then completed, the hearing was closed and a verdict of unlawful killing recorded. Judge Openshaw's family were then able to arrange his funeral, which was one of the biggest and highly attended to be held in Lancashire for years before the event and after. Held in St Wilfrid's Parish Church in Ribchester, where the Openshaw family hailed from and had a family plot, it was attended by many leading public and legal figures, senior clergy officials, representatives from the council, church and police, even club captain of Judge Openshaw's beloved Preston North End, Tom Finney, attended the funeral. More than 400 mourners packed themselves into the 750-year-old church, with the service being relayed to the many hundreds of others who were waiting outside. Following the traditionally simple but highly moving service, Judge Openshaw was committed to rest in the family grave alongside his parents, Sir James and Lady Openshaw, and his late sister Molly. By the time John Smith's trial for the murder of Judge Openshaw came around at Leeds Crown Court on the 18th of November 1981, Preston was still struggling to come to terms with the loss of such a larger-than-life character. It proved to be a dramatic trial from the very start. Smith, filled with a seething hatred and a determination to buck the system in whichever way he could, delayed proceedings by refusing to recognise the court as he refused to answer when he was asked his name. There was a lengthy debate about proceedings following this and after 40 minutes or so, pleas of not guilty were entered on his behalf to the charges against him. Throughout these minutes, Smith kept up a tirade of abuse and contempt against people in the court, even lighting up a cigarette that he'd managed to somehow smuggle in. In one outburst, he complained loudly that he was unable to get a fair trial at any court in the land because of who he'd killed, and volunteered to sit in the cells throughout the hearing, saying, If I will get a fair and impartial hearing, I will take part in it, but I can't. He then turned his back on presiding Mr Justice Lawson before sitting on the floor of the dock, out of sight and in complete contempt of court. Following direction from the judge, Smith was lifted and spun around by two of the prison officers who were flanking him in the dock. As they held him tightly by the arms, Smith shouted at the judge, Are you satisfied now? You have to humiliate and degrade people, you sadist. Told he had the right to go down to the cells and not be present, but it would not be in his interest to do so, Smith replied, I don't recognise any court in this country, and was led down the steps by four prison officers. Opening the Crown's case, Prosecutor Michael Maguire QC described in detail the unhappy and disgraceful incident of May the 12th that year and as Smith's sister Brenda sat above the court, sobbing away in the public gallery, the chilling facts of Smith's campaign were laid out before the court, gleaned from his own police statements. The day before the murder, wound up about his nephew being sent to Borstal, 
Smith had left his sister's house and immediately had searched out Judge Openshaw's address. Sure enough, the entry in the phone book was like an open invitation to him. Openshaw, WH, Park House, Broughton. Armed with a sharp hunting knife and cold-blooded murder on his mind, Smith had boarded the Prestonbound train later that afternoon at Burnley. Mr Maguire told the court, He was full of hate, bent upon revenge, attempting to settle what he considered to be an old score. A long time ago, Judge Openshaw had sentenced the defendant to borstal training. That is the motive for this murder. He then explained that Smith had got off the train at Preston Station, where he'd then headed for the Crown Court and performed a loud, theatrical protest in front of it, making a lot of noise but very little sense. Following this, he'd walked to the village of Broughton, where he had, that evening, found the Openshaw House on Garstang Road. Knowing exactly which the judge's house was, as he'd studied the electoral roll and the telephone directory. After he'd waited for the Openshaw family to go off to bed by hiding in a field nearby until the early hours, at about 1am Smith had come out near some houses on Garstang Road and made his way up to Park House. He entered the unlocked garage and opened the car door, finding two envelopes on the seat which confirmed beyond question that this was indeed Judge Openshaw's house as both letters were addressed to him. Smith closed the door and then headed to a nearby shed where he lay down using a sweater as a pillow and tried to sleep but couldn't. This was due partly to the cold but also because of thoughts of the terrible reason why he was there that were running through his mind so he decided to get up and go for a walk around the Broughton area. Just as the sky was beginning to lighten, he headed back to the house, entered the garage and climbed up into the rafters where he lay waiting like a tiger. Mr Maguire told the court. He waited hour after hour for an opportunity to exact retribution for that sentence of borsal training given to him so long ago. In fact, he was somewhat impatient that the judge should keep him waiting so long. It was just after 8.30 when he heard the noise of a door closing and footsteps approaching the garage. Smith went on in his statement. At this stage I was going to jump on him. I wanted to see his eyes and the expression on his face so I pushed the knife forward. It was a big sheath knife. I lunged at him in the stomach and he fell back. I lunged again, this time in the chest and he fell back again. I caught him on the neck and on his head. I think it was about half a dozen times that I lunged at him. Judge Openshaw had walked into the garage like he did every day, wholly unsuspecting of the horror that awaited him, because he was suddenly confronted with a maniac dropping down from the rafters and brutally stabbing him once in the body, shouting, Now then I've got you! before stabbing him a further twelve times in the neck, head and chest. Judge Openshaw wouldn't have had a clue who his attacker was as he tried to fend off the maniacal attack. It was over 12 years since they'd last been in any kind of proximity and the meeting then was hardly a memorable one, at least for Judge Openshaw. His rage then sated and thoughts of flight now taking over, Smith had attempted to start Judge Openshaw's car to escape but had been disturbed by Joyce Openshaw. As soon as she saw Smith, she ran inside to call police, unaware at the time that her husband lay dying on the garage floor. 
Smith then fled out of the driveway on foot, jumping a fence and running across a nearby field, where he flagged down local businessman Walter Hyde, a company director from Goosnar near Preston who was driving to work. While Smith made his escape, by that time police had arrived at the house and found Judge Openshaw close to death. Inspector Peter Greener, the first officer on the scene, told the court how he'd walked into the garage and spotted Judge Openshaw's body lying in front of his T-registered green Ford Escort saloon car on the driveway, saying, He was lying on his stomach with his head slightly to the left side. I could see he was bleeding very heavily and he was gasping for breath, but unconscious. Although officers tried laying him on his side to assist breathing and even cut away his clothing to do this, it was to no avail. Judge Openshaw died just as the ambulance arrived. Meanwhile, as news of the crime and a description of the killer was being telexed to every police force in Britain, Walter Hyde was undergoing his own terrifying ordeal. He'd been horrified when the heavily bloodstained and agitated Smith had leapt into the passenger seat of his car as he waited at the traffic lights in Broughton in his green Austin Maxi. Smith had pulled out a large blood-stained knife from his waistband and brandished it to the left side of Walter's body, telling him, Just do as I say and you won't get hurt. I don't suppose you've been hijacked before. It's not very nice, is it? What do you say to that, eh? This was the beginning of a six-hour ordeal for Walter Hyde. He was forced at knife point to drive at high speeds of more than 60 miles per hour northbound towards the trough of Bowland, at which point Smith told him what he'd done, saying, The guy had it coming. About 13 years ago he sent me down to Borstal. When they reached Burton, Walter told Smith that they needed to stop for petrol, and upon them doing so, Smith grabbed a blue turtleneck sweater that was lay on the back seat of the car, spat on the back of his hand and rubbed it onto the material for some reason, who knows why, then used this to cover the knife and got out of the car. He stood behind Walter as he filled the car's tank, then followed him over to the kiosk as he went to pay, even making Walter buy him 20 cigarettes and matches as he did so. Then the nightmarish journey continued. Back on the road, Smith ordered Walter to drive again at high speeds and to plough through any roadblocks that he thought may have been erected on the motorway by police to apprehend the quarry. Smith then relaxed somewhat and held the knife in his lap and even ate Walter's sandwiches during the journey, telling him, I'm having these, you probably had a nice dinner last night and I had an out. The men then discussed how Smith could eventually leave his captive, which Walter described in his later statement. He said he would have to tie me up in some trees. I tried to talk him out of this and made a suggestion that he could leave me somewhere and I would give him half an hour to escape. Not happy with this suggestion though, Smith refused this and as the pair drove further north into Scotland, Smith eventually agreed to tie Walter up and leave him somewhere and ordered him to stop the vehicle at a wood near Howick. Both men got out of the vehicle, and Smith actually handed Walter the knife to cut up a set of jump leads from the boot of the car in order for him to tie Walter up. Once this was done, Smith tied him to a tree trunk by his wrists and ankles, and before leaving, muttered to Walter, It's a bad thing to kill anyone. Walter realised that his life had been spared, saying later, Throughout this ordeal I tried to remain as calm as possible. 
I realised when he took me into the thicket that I was in grave danger. That was the point of no return. Now it must have been proper fill your pants with shrill time that, wasn't it? Can you imagine a journey like that? Proper in fear of your life with a crazed individual who just committed murder a short time before and then he gets you to stop the car in a lonely wood. What are you going to think straight away? Proper brick it, wouldn't you? As Smith made off in his car, Walter managed to free himself from his restraints almost immediately and ran off to contact police. Upon hearing the report and details of the vehicle, Lothian and Borders police officers quickly set up roadblocks and eventually the car was sighted near the historic town of Jedburgh. A police pursuit followed, with Smith driving erratically and dangerously fast, overtaking traffic on dangerous and difficult roads, and eventually the stolen Austin Maxi was boxed in between two police cars, forcing Smith to come to a stop, but not before he'd ploughed through a manned police roadblock and caused PC Colin Nickel to jump clear to save himself from serious injury. Smith was immediately away out of the vehicle, over a fence and across a nearby field, pursued by PCs Malcolm Henderson, James Wilson and Gordon Smith, who caught him in a rugby tackle after a hundred-yard dash. As two of the officers knelt on him, the third removed the knife from his belt and then arrested and handcuffed him. He was marched back to the patrol car and taken to Jedburgh Police Station. Judge Openshaw's killer had remained at liberty for just six hours. Smith was to later make the statement to Lancashire Police in which he confessed fully to all charges that he was now facing at Leeds Crown Court, murder, kidnapping and false imprisonment, and Mr Maguire told the court. The defendant's sole motive was revenge. He planned to kill him, he intended to kill him, and did in fact kill him in the savage manner that I've described. Mr Justice Lawson told the jury that there was no evidence to show that Smith was suffering from any kind of mental disorder at the time of the killing. Whilst on remand awaiting trial, he'd been examined by several psychiatrists who all came to the same conclusion. He was bad, but he was certainly not mad. The theatrics in court, such as shouting and bawling and sitting cross-legged on the floor of the dock, were just that, theatrics, and the jury were told expressly to ignore these. It took the jury of seven men and five women just two and a half hours to reach a verdict on the charge of murder, eventually finding Smith guilty after arriving at a majority verdict of 10 to 2. But they were unanimous in finding him guilty of the kidnapping and false imprisonment of Walter Hyde. Upon hearing the verdict, Smith just smiled calmly and looked up towards his sister in the public gallery but became animated once again when Mr Justice Lawson refused to allow Smith's counsel, Louise Godfrey QC, to read aloud Smith's hit list and manifesto that police had found hidden after he directed them to search under the floorboards of his sister's house. In it were the full details of everyone that Smith had planned to kill, and he wanted the court to know it. He said angrily to the court, Mr Justice Lawson in particular, that document was written before I did this and I would like people to know. I don't answer to you, mister, or anyone else on this earth. I just let God Almighty judge me. Mr Justice Lawson still refused to allow Smith's manifesto to be read out, telling the court, 
I've seen the document and I am not going to allow this court to be used as a platform for his attention-seeking activities. He has already achieved this by murdering someone. He is a very dangerous man and will remain so for a very long time. Well, God didn't miraculously come down and judge him, but Judge Lawson did, as he sentenced Smith to life imprisonment with the recommendation that he serve a minimum of 25 years. Smith's now back. I'd do exactly the same tomorrow, exactly. I'm not sorry for what I've done. I won't forget you, and if I ever get out, I'll cut your throat. Delightful, eh? He wasn't finished, neither. He went on. I knew I would get caught. I knew I would end up rotting in jail. What have I to look forward to, spending the rest of my life inside? Still, it was worth it. Why did he have to send me down in 68? If he hadn't, he would probably still be alive and I wouldn't be the monster that I am. Anyone who can kill anyone in cold blood is a monster. At least, that's what people say. Throughout and even after the verdict at the end of his trial, Smith had argued the toss that the proceedings were unjust and unfair, claiming that he could get no justice in the UK having killed a senior member of the bar. He wanted the case tried at the European Court of Human Rights, which was dismissed outright as nonsense by Mr Justice Lawson. Smith retorted in a statement, How can I get a fair and impartial hearing when nearly everyone associated with the Crown Court system either knew this man or had friends who did? The only winners in all of this are the police. Both me and Openshaw are the losers, and I don't really know who's luckier, him or myself, as I'll be incarcerated for the rest of my life. Doesn't your heart bleed for this guy, eh? Doesn't it really proper pull your heartstrings, that? He was then sent away to begin his sentence and John Smith remains in prison to this day, deemed still far too dangerous to release. As he was jailed for life, the Openshaw family were left to deal with their own life sentence in the terrible legacy that Smith had left them with. But the Openshaw legacy does still shine through. A portrait of Judge Openshaw was hung in Preston Crown Court in 1983, not long after the conclusion of Smith's trial, alongside one of that of his father, Sir James Openshaw, where it remains hanging to this day. Judge Openshaw's son Peter is also himself now the highly respected Honourable Mr Justice Sir Peter Openshaw, a High Court judge who's overseen many high-profile UK cases, including those of the prosecutions for charges relating to the 1989 Hillsborough Football Stadium disaster. No, Openshaw is certainly a name that will never be forgotten. And Smith? Well... I have no doubt just how much Smith meant his threat to Mr Justice Lawson at the time of his life sentence, and probably still does, because as we said, he remains serving that sentence to this day. By now he's one of Britain's longest serving prisoners, his crime deemed too terrible and his unrepentant nature making him still far too dangerous to release, even at his advanced age. There is a bit of a postscript of sorts to this tale, and it's one that took place in the town of Birkenhead in Merseyside more than 25 years later in 2007, and it began with a gruesome discovery made by workmen on the morning of Monday the 16th of April in an alleyway just off Argyle Street South. 
It was then that they discovered the decomposing body of a man wrapped in a piece of old carpet and several black bin liners who had horrendous wounds all over his body and had been savagely battered to death. Inquiries quickly revealed that the deceased was a 40-year-old alcoholic named Simon Sutton who lived just around the corner from the alleyway at an address on Argyle Street South with his girlfriend Gwyneth Brakes and her two children, a fact that was confirmed when Simon was sadly identified by his brother Mark shortly afterwards. Yet this wasn't to be a long drawn out murder investigation because within days a massive manhunt had been launched for his killer who is a delightful sounding 47 year old individual, a hulking violent career criminal with more than 360 convictions to his name named Daniel Brakes who lived in Hallville Road in the Liverpool district of Allerton. Brakes was the older brother of Simon's 39-year-old girlfriend Gwyneth and a warrant was issued for his arrest following the story given by Gwyneth and her two teenage sons when they were arrested following the discovery of Simon's body and his subsequent identification. Brakes and Simon's brother Jason were due to appear in court later that year facing charges of conspiracy to blackmail the HSBC branch on Grey Street in Newcastle to the sum of £300,000 by falsely claiming that an employee of the bank was being held hostage and would be killed if the money was not paid. The plot was discovered and Brakes and Jason Sutton were arrested and charged with conspiracy to blackmail, but were both released on bail awaiting trial. Brakes quickly became convinced that it had been Simon, his sister's boyfriend, that had informed of the plot to police, although it's unconfirmed if it was Simon, and on the night of April 11th, 2007, confronted him at the couple's home in Argyle Street South. In a horrific attack lasting more than four hours in total, Brakes first forced Simon to his knees to beg for his life, and then battered the eight stone, five foot six inches tall man to death with his hands, feet, and the weighted end of a pool cue. Such was his murderous rage and the horrible, terrifying bully that he was, he even forced his two nephews to kick and stamp on Simon as he was dying, threatening to blowtorch or kill them if they called police or even an ambulance. Brakes also viciously battered his sister, stopping short of murdering her, but threatening to return and kill her if she contacted police. Before he left to calmly head home, he spat on Simon's body, which was lying on the bed in the spare room, and said, that is what happens to grasses, he told his petrified sibling and nephews. Brakes returned the following day to remove the body, but only after proudly showing his mother and friends what he'd done, again reiterating that that was what happened to people who told tales, and then threatening each of them with death if they reported the murder. Yeah, imagine threatening to shoot your mum if she reported you for murder. Crazy that, eh? At first deciding to dismember the body, he then relented and forced his sister and nephews to help him dispose of the body in the alley around the corner, where it was found some days later. Brakes' entire family and acquaintances lived in abject terror of him, and I know it boggles the mind, right, doesn't it, but so in fear were they of him that they said nothing until police arrived at the door having found Simon's body. 
Brakes, meanwhile, after dumping the body, had fled north from Liverpool to Chesterley Street in County Durham to the Dean Villas home of piano teacher Mrs Joy Heaps and her husband Mike, a retired probation officer. The couple had befriended Brakes some years before when he was a Durham prisoner serving a 14-year sentence and had allowed him the use of their caravan before release. And after phoning them, he arrived at their home with his girlfriend Helen White very early the next morning in an agitated state. Briggs claimed that he wanted to confess something and asked for absolute confidentiality from Mr Heaps, which was refused, but Briggs continued anyway and gave a partial confession about what he'd done. He claimed to Joy Heaps that he was taking the rap for the murder and had gone to the scene and got blood on his clothes to deliberately incriminate himself. Brakes then became enraged and very threatening, telling the couple that if they ever reported what he'd said, he would have them shot, a threat which they took very seriously knowing his violent nature. Making Helen White bring him a knife from the kitchen, which she complied with, Brakes then said that because Mr and Mrs Heaps had not guaranteed him confidentiality, he'd have to tie them up, take some money and take their car. Brakes struck 67-year-old Mike on the head whilst he was wielding a large pair of dressmaking scissors, and then he forced all three into the Heap's car and drove them to London, drinking brandy as he drove erratically down the motorway at speeds of up to 125 miles an hour. At one point, Brakes even drove the wrong way down a slip road while his passengers screamed at him. Stopping only to withdraw cash from the Heap's account, this nightmarish journey then continued, although Mr Heaps eventually persuaded Brakes to let him drive the car. Finally, at the end of their ordeal, the couple were abandoned in their car in Southall in West London and Brakes continued with his escape, leading to a nationwide hunt. The couple went immediately to a police station but initially said nothing about the murder, fearing Brakes would indeed return and shoot them. It was a short manhunt though, because as Brakes' picture was flashed to all police forces throughout the country, he was spotted and arrested in Southampton on April the 20th. Both he and Helen White were taken back to Liverpool, where Brakes was to deny murdering Simon Sutton completely, blaming everybody but himself. He claimed his girlfriend and his sister were part of a conspiracy to murder Simon Sutton, and although he admitted he'd been present when Simon was savagely battered to death, Brakes claimed that two shadowy Liverpool criminals he would only name as X and Y had actually killed Simon and had forced him to take the rap for it by threatening the life of Brakes' sister. At his trial in Liverpool Crown Court in June 2008, Brakes denied murder, kidnap, conspiracy to blackmail and false imprisonment and repeated his story from arrest, saying that he confessed to the killing because two men, X and Y, had threatened to kill his sister, claiming, All I was worried about was my sister being attacked, so I made the decision to confess to killing Simon Sutton. I made the decision on the Tuesday that I would go about incriminating myself by getting people to the house and telling them that I'd killed him. Flanked by six security guards, casually dressed brakes erupted as the judge asked his barrister, Philip Hackett QC, to defend him, despite being instructed not to. Brakes shouted to the judge, Hang on, I'm not guilty. That's my solicitor. You can't tell my solicitor what to do. I'm not guilty, and you're part of this fit-up, you mug. 
The jury saw through his tissue lies story and on Tuesday the 8th of July 2008 took just four hours to convict Brakes of murder and two offences of kidnap but he was cleared of blackmail and the jury was discharged from reaching verdicts of two charges of falsely imprisoning the heaps. After the verdict was read out, the defendant laughed and shouted, Can I have a second opinion, Your Honour? This was of course refused. The judge then condemned Brakes for his horrific crime and his absurd defence, and sentenced him to life imprisonment with a minimum term of 30 years to serve before ever being considered for release by which time Brakes will be 78 years old. Upon hearing his sentence, Brakes shouted, You suppressed the truth in this trial, I'll escape prison and I'll kill you. As members of the jury gasped in shock at this outburst, the judge said calmly to them, I very much doubt he'll have the chance, take him down. He said this, undoubtedly having echoes, of the events of nearly 40 years before running through his mind, but with his father's same sense of justice prevailing, because the presiding judge in Brakes' trial was the Honourable Sir Peter Openshaw QC, the son of Judge William Openshaw. History repeating? We can only hope not, can't we? I thought the tale of John Smith and his murderous grudge over many years was an absolutely remarkable one, but It also struck me as what a waste of a pair of lives and the tragedy, heartache and loss that his actions brought for so many people. How can you be so blind to blame someone only following the letter of the law as is laid down through years of precedent for troubles that you bring upon yourself? If you admit 19 other offences on top of the 5 that you're charged with, then yes, it will go in your favour for admitting them, but the fact remains that that's still 26 criminal offences you've committed, so therefore expect punishment for these as dictated by law. If you don't want to be punished, don't commit crimes. I know Smith had his demons and struggles with different things, and obviously had his problems, I mean, not everyone climbs up Blackpool Tower because they're pissed off, do they? But to be so filled with hate at a system that you make a hit list, not a fantasy one, but one that you actually go about putting in motion, well that's serious issues indeed there, isn't it? Nothing was gained from killing Judge Openshaw either, all that was gained was the death of a respected, kindly man, a family who were left to grieve and mourn their loss, and a life sentence for John Smith, incarcerated further and for longer in the system that he hates so much again through his own actions. Complete waste of two lives. And Brakes, well, what can you say about him? Some people deserve never to see the light of day ever again, don't they? And he really, really does sound one of them, doesn't he? A bully, a violent thug, and a brutal murderer, filled with bravado and venom to the last. I'm sure there are many people who are sentenced in court who have plenty of abuse to throw at the bench, but I found the parallels with the two cases mentioned here quite remarkable really, a violent horrific murder in each, a flight in a car with a hostage in each, the outbursts in court in each, and the intentions to kill the presiding judge. One said nothing about it at the time and actually did it many years later, the other shouted it out and we'll never likely get the chance to. As I said before, we can only hope, can't we?
So then, what did you guys think of the episode The Judge and the Grudge? It's quite a tale indeed this one, isn't it? It was a right find that I came across while researching a completely different case and as soon as I read it I thought, that's so going into the show that. I hope that it's one you found interesting anyway and I'd love to hear your thoughts about it in the episode thread in the Facebook group should you wish or you can reach me through mail or any of the show's social media links really. I'm always all ears and I'll always get back to you. Before I go, I have this week's show promo for you, and this week comes the turn of True Crime Scotland. Now that probably doesn't need any explaining, as I'm sure you can guess from the title what it's about, but I've liked what I've heard so far from it, and I have to say, the accent is fab. It's up there with Barry's from Extraordinary Stories, I think, and I'm sure many of you listening will know who and what I mean by that. Here's the host to sell you some True Crime Scotland. Scotland is a beautiful country with a rich history and a bright future. But it has a dark underbelly and it has been home to some of the most mysterious, disturbing and barbaric crimes ever committed. Cold-blooded murders, serial killers, gangland assassinations, violence against children, acts of terrorism, mysterious disappearances and acts of pure evil fueled by lust and greed. True Crime Scotland is a podcast dedicated to bringing you stories of the crimes that have happened in Scotland but have shocked the world. Some of the crimes we'll cover you'll be familiar with, others you'll have forgotten about and some you might never have heard of. Search for us on your podcast app or find us on Twitter and Facebook under True Crime Scott. Stories of real crimes and mysteries from Scotland. Great voice or what that, eh? Cheers for that. True Crime Scotland is available where you get your shows from and it's also on social media as explained. Why not have a follow and take the time out to leave the show some love in the review? Because shows need love as well, you know. So that's all from me for another week. It's time to go off and start again for another episode now. And then once I've finished, I'm off to climb up Blackpool Tower. Thanks very much for joining me this week, all of you. I've been, I still am, and still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast. I'm wishing you guys all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you again very soon. Cheers all, take care, and goodbye for now.